Well, good morning, everybody, and Josh, thanks for the, the nice welcome. I'm just curious, anybody else here from Iowa? Who would admit it? My wife raised her hand. That's cool. Yeah, there's not many of us. So um, I was a pastor in Iowa uh, for eight years, eight-ish years in Northeast Iowa, came out to the University of Pennsylvania in 2016 and served as a chaplain, and then a little over a year ago um, started working for Serving Leaders Ministries, which is based out of Westchester. We opened an office in Willow Grove, where I'm the ministry director there. Um, but as Josh mentioned, um, our family is member are members of CityLine Church, and so Greetings to you from them, and it's great to be with you this morning. Um, you can open in your Bibles to the book of Ruth, and I'm going to read. It's a relatively short chapter, chapter one, and you can follow along with me as I read from God's word. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years and both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. For I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moab, Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, Lord, would be pleasing in your sight. God, would you do a work in us that we would leave this place with deeper faith than when we came. Open your word to us. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may see wonderful things in your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. So friends, this is maybe my favorite book in the Bible next to John's gospel. It's certainly my favorite book in the Old Testament. And as we think about the Old Testament, we see that it's comprised of stories about kings and prophets and very important people in the story of God's mission to restore his creation. But sandwiched in between these stories of the patriarchs and matriarchs and kings and prophets, we have this one little book that appears a little bit out of place. 
It's short. It contains these obscure characters who seem terribly ordinary. What in the world is a story about a couple of widows and a farmer doing amidst all of these famous stories? How could this story be about God's mission? That's what we'll explore a bit this morning. Um, The book of Ruth has been called the most beautiful short story in the world. That was a philosopher and German poet by the name of Johann von Goethe. And I agree with him. It's short. It's just four quick chapters. And it's devastatingly beautiful. But why are we reading this story? It's 3,000 years old. And, And how are we to read it? Those are a couple of the questions I want us to address this morning. How are we to read this story? How are we to understand the story of Ruth, a Moabite widow, in her journey to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law? Well, I think, first of all, we see it as just one little part in God's story and his coming to restore the creation that we've broken. Him coming to save us who have rebelled. Him coming because he's committed himself to us to redeem a people, and to make all things new, ultimately through Jesus Christ. So this story is about the mission of God, to save people. And and I think as as we're going through this and we're talking about um, joining God's mission, because we do, as followers of Jesus, we have a part to play in joining God's mission, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we think about that, we always come back to remember salvation is from the Lord. He's the one who saves. His burden is for the lost of the world. And so that mission of God is the background of this story of Ruth and gives us our theological setting. What about the historical setting? Well, Ruth is an historical book and it comes after in sequence in scripture, after the book of Judges. And that's also the era in which it's set. When the judges ruled, we read in verse 1. In the time of the judges is when the people of Israel have entered into the promised land. They've settled. And yet it's before the time of the kings, before Samuel has anointed Saul or David to be a king. And it's a time of constant rebellion against God. The last, book of, uh, the last verse of the book of Judges gives us the historical context. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did as he or she saw fit. Or another translation, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. If you've ever read Judges, you'll find it horrific. It's been described as one very erudite scholar as Israel being flushed down the toilet again and again. And maybe if you've never read um, Judges, if you've ever seen the television program Breaking Bad, it's really just a riff on Judges. You think it's bad that a chemistry teacher is out cooking meth in the desert in his underwear? It gets much worse. That's the story of the Judges. You think it's bad? It gets worse. The Israelites rebelled against God by serving the gods of other nations. They ignored God's law. There was gross idolatry and wickedness. And God judges the people of Israel again and again. And then they cry out to God and he delivers them again and again. That's the landscape of this book of Ruth. That's the landscape behind the story. And and maybe it's helpful helpful for me to think of it as a, a painting. If you would ever go to one of the great museums of the world, you'll sometimes enter into a room and there's this massive landscape that takes up an entire wall. Marcel, my wife, and I, we were in Paris eons ago, and we were in the Louvre, and we went in and we saw uh, a painting by David, Jacques-Louis David, called The Coronation of Napoleon, and it was about, the, it seemed like, the size of this whole windowed wall here. And yet, in that massive landscape, there is always going to be a miniature in the foreground of some other activity taking place. Well, in this landscape of the judges, we have Ruth presenting that miniature in the foreground. It's a portrait of God's faithfulness set against this awful backdrop. And maybe we think, well, you know, this is 3,000 years old, different place. Um, What does that have to do with us today? Well, scripture is always relevant to us today. But I think we can see the existential background of the story that applies today. If you ever hear somebody say to you, you know, we live in the worst of times, uh, it's the worst it's ever been, you can push back against that, first of all, by saying there's nothing new under the sun, but furthermore, by saying that personal autonomy 
and moralistic relativism has a long and tragic history. Just as in the judge's day when everyone did as he or she saw fit, we live in a day where everybody does what's right in their own eyes. And so we can say this, like individually we're atomized from each other, but even, this is what's scary, within the church we become balkanized. A bunch of little different fiefdoms all saying, no, we've got the market cornered on truth and deviate up from us a little bit, we'll, we'll just become different. I think it's just a part of our culture where we serve the idol of self, self-worship, personal autonomy. It's a sin we're all drawn to, pleasing myself, doing what I want to do. One of my favorite writers from mid-20th century was a, a guy by the name of James Weldon Johnson, and he has this character in one of his anthologies who's an arguer, always gets into debates with people. And at one point in, in the story, this person says to somebody who's debating him, says, you may convince me that you're right, but you'll never convince me that I'm wrong. That's the existential background. And as we go through, Ruth, I would like us to ask ourselves some questions. What portrait will God paint in the story of Ruth, in this landscape of wickedness? And furthermore, what miniature, what portrait of faithfulness is God painting today in your own life? Here and now, against this background of which we live in, war and pestilence, degradation, atomization. And I think we'll see in Ruth the mission of God at work. And I hope we start to ask questions about this, this portrait that God is painting in our own lives, in our mission here and now, because we have a part to play in his mission. It's the same calling that Abraham had, that the people of Israel had, and all others who have believed throughout history including today, to be a blessing to others, to be a fragrance of life in God, and to declare the good news of God's grace in Jesus Christ. I think we'll see a part of that story in Ruth's story, and hopefully in our own. All right, so let's look at this story. Once upon a time, there was a man named Elimelech, and names are going to mean a lot in this story of Ruth. Elimelech's name means God is king, right out of the gate. Sounds pretty good. Seems like a good dude. He and his wife, Naomi, her name means pleasant. They have two sons, Malon and Kilion, and they leave Bethlehem because of famine in the land. And right out of the gate, there is irony in the story. Bethlehem means land of bread. So Elimelech's family left the land of bread because there was no bread in the land of bread. And they go to Moab, traveling east to the other side of the Dead Sea to try to find a life there. And this famine in Israel, we're not really given uh, the reason for it. It could have been because of drought or more likely because of war. But either way, it was judgment from God for their wickedness, rebellion, and idolatry. The Israelites, because of their disobedience, were conquered time and again by either the Moabites or the Midianites. And the Midianites in particular used this war of attrition where they're just going to um, lay stones, throw stones all over fields to destroy crops. And so Elimelech, as a faithful Jew, after this happens and there's no food, there's no bread in the land of bread, as a faithful Jew, he would have cried out to God for deliverance. Instead, he flees. And so we don't have a real great picture of Elimelech. And here's why this is so important. It was only in Israel, it was only in the land, the promised land, that there was salvation. To leave the promised land was contrary to the mission of God. And nowadays we think, you know, as missionaries we go. Back in the Old Testament, it was Israel drawing people like a magnet from the surrounding nations, having them come and look at Israel. Why do you guys do the things you do, eat the things you eat? Why do you worship the way you worship? Who is this God? It was tied to a people and the land. And so Elimelech proves faithless, by departing the land of salvation. And furthermore, it's kind of odd. He gives his sons Canaanite names. So why would Elimelech flee to Moab, particularly when Moab is not the promised land of God's presence and, and grace, but is instead a pagan land where this God, small g God, Chemosh, is worshipped? The God Chemosh was a fertility God to whom children were sacrificed, and in a form of worship, there was prostitution, ritual prostitution that was happening. 
And there again, we say, man, that is so far removed from our culture today. Well, maybe, but is it? Does this happen in our day? Well, our lack of restraint on sexual liberty is pervasive. Sexual immorality is the liturgy of self-worship. But we don't sacrifice children. In the United States, we've had over a, a million abortions a year for at least the last four years, and it goes on much further than that. That's the landscape. More similarities, I think, than we may be comfortable with. For Elimelech's family, it gets worse. The family moves to Moab. The men die. And this was essentially a death sentence for the women, Naomi and the two daughters-in-law. In ancient culture, women owned nothing and had no real protection under the law, particularly in a place like Moab. That's why God says throughout Scripture that he's a defender of widows and orphans. And this was true many hundreds of years ago, but in many parts of the world, this is true today as well. Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah are destitute, and they would be easy prey from men of ill intent. So Naomi makes the decision to return home. And we get from this decision the sense that Naomi is a believer a follower of God. She puts her hope in him, hope that if, if I can get back to Israel, there will be somebody there who is obedient to God and will actually care for us, care for the poor. God is her hope. And it's from God's people that she seeks mercy. We'll see in verses 13 and 20 that Naomi, whose name means pleasant, says her name is bitter. Like me, maybe like so many of us, when things go badly, we become embittered towards God. And yet God is so merciful. He puts up with our complaints. We're even call, uh, told to, to cry out to God. We see it in David and throughout the Psalms. God, what is going on? I don't understand what's happening. Why, why is this happening? God, where are you? That's Naomi. And he doesn't rebuke. He simply calls us to trust as we cry out. Naomi's bitter, but she has hope. So Naomi and the women set out, but along the way, Naomi tells them to go back. Maybe, just maybe, your mother's household will take care of you, take you in. Go back to your mother's house. Now, this is odd because this is essentially the anti-gospel don't come to salvation. Remember, it's tied to a people and a place. Don't come to salvation. This is unthinkable. Here's why I want to point this out, not to, to slam on Naomi at all, but I, I hope this gives us hope. I hope this gives us hope. If Naomi can be used by God to bring a person to salvation through her anti-gospel, maybe I can too when I screw up the words. When I feel the, the pressing of the Holy Spirit, you need to share with this person, and I don't, or I even malign the gospel in some way, and detract from the gospel, God still saves. God still saves. It's God's mission. He's the one who saves. So, so what does Naomi do positively? Well, she prays. She prays for God's blessing in verse 9. A friend of mine called a few months ago. He works for a large tech company, maybe the largest tech company um, in New York. And over the years, we've talked, you know, how can he share the gospel with, with coworkers, people that he works with? And he says it's been really tricky. Uh, this company is big on DEI, but maybe not so big on Christianity, so he's really careful with what he says. And um, so we were talking, I said, you know, just do good work. You say, yeah, I, I do good work. I'll be a good friend to, to, to your coworkers. And he says, yeah, I'm a, I'm a good friend. Love them well. I'm loving them well, trying to get to know them. But what do I do? How do I turn the corner and share the gospel with them? And I just didn't have any real brilliant advice. Like, yeah, I know it's, it can be awkward. Um, you, you, maybe just do this. Just Pray. Pray. And uh, he called me um, a couple of days after this phone conversation. And uh, he said, yeah, I prayed. And then God did something. And he was like really surprised. God, yeah, God actually answered the prayer. Um, 
he went to work, and a guy in his department asked why my friend, why, why do you show up so early? And um, he, as he's sharing the story, he's describing, he says, yeah, I just, I like to take care of some stuff while it's quiet. And his coworker um, says, well, I see you're reading something. What are you reading? And my friend, I'm just, just doing a little reading, reading, and then he's looking for drones. <laughs> reading, reading the Bible? And he wasn't sure what this guy was going to say. And uh, his coworker says, yeah, I grew up in the church, but I lost touch over the years. Can I go with you sometime? That's what you call low-hanging fruit. <laughs> and you say, yes, you can. And so his coworker comes to church that next weekend and brings along another coworker who has no exposure to Christianity whatsoever. And now they're a part of my friend's life group. Hearing the gospel, understanding what it, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And my point in sharing that is my friend prayed. Naomi, in this episode, she prays a blessing. And, and Orpah does go back home, but Ruth doesn't. And we get some of the most beautiful words in Scripture. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. It's a solemn vow on pain of death. It's Ruth casting her lot with the God of Israel. Even while Naomi's giving the anti-gospel turn back, Ruth becomes a follower of God. And in this, I can sort of hear the words of, of Peter. If Christ, in, in John's gospel, asks, are you gonna leave me too? Peter says, Lord, to whom shall I go? You have the words of eternal life. For Ruth, where is she supposed to go? Back to a few hard years in Moab? Maybe get married and worship this God, small g, Chemosh? No, she's going to go to hope, to the promised land. She'll go to salvation. Your God will be my God. She's willing to forsake all else for the sake of hope in God. She may have had better chances in Moab. I think Orpah thought that she would. Naomi probably too. She may have had difficulty in leaving her parents. But for Ruth, she forsook everything for the sake of hope in the gospel of God's grace. So Ruth is in Bethlehem as an immigrant. And the people are amazed that she came back with Naomi. This is a foreigner. The enemy, uh, Moabites were enemies of the people of Israel. But now a Moabitess is a part of the people of God. It's against this backdrop, this landscape of idolatry and wickedness, that the mission of God is fulfilled. It went out, kind of strange circumstances, but now someone is coming in to the people of God. In this case, through the unlikely peregrinations of Elimelech and Naomi, even to Israel's archenemy, Moab, to this unlikely Moabitess, she becomes a child of God through faith. From death in Moab to life in Israel, a new beginning a new beginning for Ruth. And new beginnings are what Christianity promises. I don't care where you come from, what you've done. God receives you. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're received. You're counted as a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. You're a new person in Christ. And whenever God redeems a person... Then or now, God's intention is that there's a new beginning and you become a part of God's story that he's painting in your life. And you say, well, it's really ordinary circumstances in my life. Nothing big going on. I don't know there was a whole lot going on for Ruth either. So the question for us today is this. Where is God using me as a part of his story, his redemptive work in the world? Just like Ruth, if you've put your faith in Jesus, you've given Jesus your sin, not your good works, you've given Jesus your sin and you've received from him forgiveness and salvation and hope, acceptance by God, and you've forsaken the idols of this age, you've chosen to serve the Lord, to walk in his ways, you become a new part of his story, of his mission to the world. So what is God doing in and through you? What miniature of God's grace is true in your life? What portrait is God painting? Again, you may say, I don't know. I'm not sure. 
Our application today is really simple. Pray. Pray. Ask God to lead you in his mission to bring people to you who need grace, and forgiveness, and hope that only God can give. God, would you, would you send somebody my way? I know it could be awkward, but would you do that? This book of Ruth is about God's mission and God's calling unlikely people to be caught up in that mission. He called Abraham and Sarah. He called the people of Israel. He called Naomi and Ruth. He called David. He calls you to be a blessing. So how does God visit his people? Well, how does he accomplish his mission in this story, chapter 1 of Ruth? In this Generation of spiritual decay, broken hearts and dreams, political strife and famine. In the midst of this decay, the Lord visited his people. Verse 7. Brought food. He gave them food. God sometimes visits us in a way that exposes our romanticism. We We want a Benny Hinn service. Maybe we have a cynical view about God's visitation. We've waited and nothing happens. We were listening on the way here, a song by Sufjan Stevens. It wasn't the song, but it made me think of it um, from years ago. This is dating me a bit, but um, Casimir Pulaski Day, Tuesday night at Bible study, we raised our hands and prayed over your body, but nothing ever happens. It's a song about a friend of his who had bone cancer. Maybe that's you. You've prayed and you've waited and... Not much is happening. And you, you've lived through two and a half years of COVID, racial tensions, and a seemingly impotent church, collectively, corporately. And like Naomi, you have hopes and dreams, and now they've been dashed, and where's God in the middle of it? I think Ruth's story shows us we need not be romantic, but also that it doesn't need to be the cynical resignation In the ordinariness, God has a story for you. And it may be incredibly ordinary. Jesus is coming again. Will our ordinary stories be the miniature in the foreground against cultural decay's landscape? We know that things are not the way that they're supposed to be. But we want to look through the decay and, God, what are you doing? What's this miniature that you're painting in my life? And maybe my really ordinary life. So where was God in the midst of the story? He brought food to Israel to be sure, but he was even present with bitter Naomi in the midst of her pain. How? Through Ruth, through ordinary Ruth, your ordinary story. What's it going to be? Stuff that maybe you haven't even thought about, but when you tuck your kids in bed at night and you pray with them, it's a blessing. It's a beautiful portrait, a miniature. When you listen to the pain and hurt of a friend, when you take your spouse out on a, out on a date, brothers, take your wives out on a date, all right? That's loving them well, blessing them. When you call your parents to ask them how they're doing. God is visiting them through you. Like Ruth showing Naomi chesed, covenantal, faithful love, so you are doing to those around you. I think sometimes we just have to stop. God, you are. You're painting something beautiful in my life. And when you do that, you're wrapping your arms around them. Sometimes without recognition, without thanks. In verse 21, Naomi tells the people of Bethlehem, I've come back empty. Who's standing right next to her? Too ordinary to see until later. God is painting a beautiful miniature in the midst of chaotic times. I have the worship team come on up and let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for these friends. Thank you for these brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, and uh, most of whom I don't know, but 
my guess is God in their very, maybe ordinary or extraordinary lives, they're doing things, small things, simple things. They're showing grace to those around them. Showing your loving kindness to those around them. God, we pray that you would bring even more people into our lives. That we can show and tell the beauty of Jesus, your loving kindness in him, in his life and his death and his resurrection. Lord, we pray that you would do this, that we would know and believe even more firmly the height and depth of your loving kindness towards us. We pray it, Lord God, for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name. Friends, I'll ask you now to stand to say the great thanksgiving. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. We Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right indeed to give thanks and praise to you, O God. We worship you and praise you. We thank you, Lord, that even when we were lost and foreigners to the covenant of grace, you sought us out and adopted us into your family. And now you are our God forever. And so we join our voices together with those who have entered into the eternal day of rest and all the host of heaven and in their unending hymn of praise. God of majesty, and in your Son, Jesus Christ, we have seen the fullness of your love. You came with mercy in your voice and were mocked as one despised. You came with peace in your heart and met with violence and death. By your power, you broke free from the prison of the tomb, and at your command, the gates of death were opened. The one who is dead now lives. The one who humbled himself is raised to rule over all creation, the Lamb upon the throne. The one ascended on high is with us always, as he promised. So Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us that the bread we break and the cup we bless may be the communion of the body and blood of Christ. Unite us with your Messiah, Jesus, and strengthen us thereby. Amen. So we approach this table of the Lord's Supper, praying as Jesus taught us in one voice, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Friends, you may be seated. And I'll ask that the four communing members of Ironworks uh, join myself and Ryan up front in serving communion.
The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Therefore, let us proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. This table that we share in is not the table of iron works church, but it's the table of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's for his church. And so we invite all committed followers of Jesus to partake of this sacrament. Those who are baptized members of a church that proclaims the gospel and under the care of a congregation, who are at peace with God and their neighbor, and who seek to live more faithfully for Christ. If you're not a Christian, If you're not prepared to share this meal, we encourage you to spend this time in prayer using it, uh, using the prayers that uh, follow as guidelines, and we hope this is helpful to you as you consider your relationship with Jesus and with his people, the church. All right, and so how we're going to do this, communion is going to be served in two stations here up front, so please come forward down the center aisle and go to the shortest line, whichever side. And you can take bread um, and then either wine from the common cup or from the prepackaged cups. Um, And then we'll pray for your kids as they come as well if they're non-participating members. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. So come now and take them. Remember that Christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving.
Let's say the prayer after communion together, saying, We praise and thank you, O Christ, for this sacred feast. For here we receive you. Here the memory of your passion is renewed. Here our minds are filled with grace. And here a pledge of future glory is given. When we shall feast at the table where you reign with all your saints forever. Amen. Breathe. 
Amen. He is holy. Before I send you off with the Lord's benediction, just a couple of quick announcements. Uh, it is a teardown Sunday, so if you could be generous and lend us your muscles, uh, just stack a few chairs for us. Um, also, our church depends on the tithes and offerings of his people. Um, so if you are a member here, um, please uh, feel free to, to give at the, the box in the back or online um, through the, the website on the screen. Uh, if you are here as a visitor, please feel under no obligation to give. It is our joy to serve you. Um, and with that, please receive this, the Lord's benediction for you all. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go forth to love and serve the city. Hallelujah. Amen. You are dismissed.